0: y'all and welcome to the Feasting on Truth podcast. I'm Erin Warren and I'm so glad you're here. We are continuing our study called Unexpected Savior, an inductive Bible study on the gospel of Mark. For more information about the study, you can go to feastingontruth.com slash mark. Also on my website, you can find information about other studies and books, including my latest release, a devotional through the promises of God called Everyday Prayers for Faith, Finding Confidence in God No Matter What. As we've studied, we've continued to see how important context and structure are to understanding Mark's intent and purpose. Today is no exception. Many of these passages are often interpreted in isolation, but I want to encourage you to lay aside the preconceived notions and look with fresh eyes at these passages in the context of Mark's middle section. His purpose here is to show why Jesus came, the mission that he had to accomplish, and when we see it through that lens, it will give us fresh perspective on our suffering servant Messiah. Here is Mark chapter 10. Y'all, and welcome back to Unexpected Savior, an inductive Bible study on the Gospel of Mark. I have absolutely loved this, and I know I've shared it a few times, but I continue to be so blown away by the beauty that is within the Gospel of Mark. This is not some fast-hitting, fly-by, quick little snippet, random things put together uh, account of Jesus's life here on earth. It is beautifully um mastered, structured together to show us this incredible picture of who God is, of who Jesus is, and what he came to do. We are wrapping up this very short little middle section, act two, as some scholars call it, of the Gospel of Mark with Mark chapter 10. Um, This section has kind of been a series of conversations. If you've noticed, it's kind of got a different rhythm um, I feel like it has a different urgency. Um, the first section of the book, which is Mark 1 through about halfway through chapter 8, um, mostly takes place in and around Galilee. And here we see Jesus moving toward Jerusalem. Um, These are conversations that kind of happen on the way. Um, we've seen Jesus kind of shift to plain speech. Um, he's flipping the expected ideal of who who the Messiah truly is. Um, He's showing how his kingdom is set apart. Um, At the end of chapter eight, um, he predicts his suffering and resurrection very plainly. He says to them, um, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Mark nine really focused heavily on humility. We got this glimpse of the glory of Jesus um, in the um, transfiguration. Um, And instead of staying in the glorified state, he humbled himself, veils his glory once again, returns to earth because he has a mission to accomplish. Um, We continue to see this thread, hear, believe, bear fruit. That, according to James R. Edwards, is Mark's definition of faith that we see over and over and over. And we're going to continue to see that thread um, even in To Mark chapter 10. Um, And I love the cry of the Father that we saw last week in Mark chapter 9. I believe, help my unbelief. I have faith. I have full faith in you, but help me in those areas where I still struggle to trust you. Um, That is the cry that all of us should have, that we are continually proclaiming, holding fast to our full confidence of our faith, but asking him to help us overcome and trust him in those areas where we struggle, the already, but the not yet. Um, And so before we jump in to chapter 10, I want to open us up in prayer. Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for the power that lies in it. I thank you that in it, you are there waiting to reveal yourself to us. So Lord, as we come with humble hearts, let us have eyes to see and ears to hear, minds to perceive, Lord, who you are and what it is that you have come to do for us. May we not miss you in the pictures that we see here in Mark chapter 10. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, Lord. May your truth be shared. I am here. I am yours. Speak. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. So Mark chapter 10 (laughs) um, is the final, like I said, it's the final chapter in the middle section of this. Um, And it's chapters like these that um, I really love studying in context. Um, because some of this kind of seems to come out of left field. Um, And so oftentimes if we are reading in isolation or we are dropping into the middle of a book or certain types of um, topical study, then um, I think we often kind of um, are more at risk for misinterpretation. Um, And this uh, chapter reminds us that Mark has purposefully structured his gospel, and that there's a reason why this passage about divorce is here. We don't honestly have in Mark's gospel a lot of the teachings of Jesus. We see him teaching a lot, but we don't necessarily have his quoted words, and I think that's why this section is kind of special, because we actually get more of Jesus's teaching words um, if you think of like the Gospel of Mark, you have the Sermon on the Mount, and you have um which includes um some teachings about divorce and some other ways that his kingdom is different. Um, and so, um I want us to to make sure that we are pulling back here um and and getting the bigger picture. I think one of our temptations with the Gospel of Mark, as I said at the beginning, is that we tend to zero in on these short little snippets and want to interpret this, and then interpret this, and then interpret this. And what studying Mark in Context has taught me is to to pull back and see the threads that Mark is pulling and why he puts certain stories where he does. Um, This is also an opportunity for us to seek trusted commentaries. Um, I am a big fan, as y'all know, of studying scripture with your own heart and mind first. Um, But one of the other things that I'm really big on is that we are leaning on trusted scholars, particularly in the area of cultural context, so that we can understand first and foremost what this scripture might have meant to the original audience before we translate it to today. And I know that there are some of you out there who are listening to this who have been hurt by misuse of ver- of chapters like today. And so I want us to kind of pull back to, in some ways, kind of lay aside what we know um, about s- this particular section. And I want us to come to it with fresh eyes to see Mark's beauty and intent. I'm going to start before I read the, the scripture. I want to start with the IVP Bible Background Commentary setup for Mark 10 because I think it helps us better see that big thread. So, because 10:1 and 2 addresses um, 1 through 12 addresses the treatment of spouses. Uh, 10, 13 through 16 deals with the treatment of children and 10, 17 through 31 relates to one's true household in the kingdom. Some scholars have compared 10, 1 through 31 to the ancient literary form household code. So what um, Craig S. Keener is saying here is that this is a form um, of household code. What makes it different though as he points out, is that this passage is in narrative form. So it reads different, but it lays in um, in structure very similar to an ancient literary form household code. Um, so this is really kind of in a lot of ways, we're in this, remember, we're talking about why Jesus came, what his mission is in this section, and how it is different than what the world has to offer. Um, And he's continuing that. Remember, there were no chapter and verse markers. And so we want to pull that thread from chapter eight and nine as well, and understanding it in the big um, context. Um, Keener continues, if this comparison is at all relevant, it is interesting that Mark's point runs counter to the values of those codes in his culture which stressed the absolute submission of wives children and slaves and so we see uh, mark in some ways kind of flipping on its head a little bit of the expected ideal even as it relates to the kingdom so let's dive in to chapter 10 and he left them there and went to the region of judea and beyond the jordan and the crowds gathered to him again and again as was his custom he taught them so we see jesus moving toward Jerusalem. He's um, in the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. So check out your map in your book. Um, and the crowds have gathered again. And as was his custom, he taught them. This is um, what we have seen Jesus um, point to time and time again, that he came to teach, that he came to teach. And we see him continually teaching people and teaching the crowds. Verse two, and the Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So I think what's really important here is to recognize first and foremost, that the Pharisees are once again, testing Jesus. And I think this is the bigger picture they are looking for a reason to arrest him they are looking for cause to um to shut him down and so they continually are trying to test him and I love how Jesus continues to ask questions in the face of that testing and um, not give them what they want um they are seeking um like I said they are seeking a reason to, to capture him. So the IVP Bible background commentary continues. The issue was, um, in their culture, the issue was typically more about the grounds for divorce, not whether divorce was ever valid. So to ask Jesus uh, whether Jesus thinks divorce is permissible at all is to ask whether he knows or agrees with Moses's law. And so what the Pharisees hear is that culturally, there were instances where divorce was allowed. Um, in Hebrew, in, in Jewish culture, only I believe only a man could um file for divorce. A woman was not able to. So I'm gonna to get to that in just a second. Um, but what they are doing is actually trying to trick Jesus by asking this question. What they're really trying to get at is if he is a if he not only knows, but agrees with Moses's law, because for them, that was the highest law, that was the highest standard. And if he disagreed with Mosaic law, he could, they could then, say, have grounds to be able to arrest him or um, turn the crowds against him. Um, divorce was one of your uh, words to look up this week. Miriam webster defines it as the action or an instance of legally dissolving the Greek word literally means to set free or to release. Um, properly, it's to let go or release. Um, it The term uh, implies the release or annulment of an existing bond. What I love too is that even in the definition, um, neither of those specifically call out marriage. And so I want us to think of divorce as a separation. Um, in Mark 9 we saw, and this is why it's important to remember context and to make sure that we are looking at what just came in scripture and then what's about to come as well when we're interpreting. So in Mark 9, we saw um, Jesus using hyperbole to prove a point. Remember, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It's better to enter heaven with one eye than two. He wasn't literally saying gouge out your eyes. He was using hyperbole to make a point. And so that is what has just been said. And so, um, Mark is, I think, continuing a little bit of this use of hyperbole here, um, because the IVP points out, um, that there are other places in scripture that there are given reasons for divorce. Um, it was under Mosaic law. It was, um, It was permissible for a man to give his wife a certificate of divorce. But what Jesus says here is that he then um, appeals to a more previous standard, and that is at creation. Um, So he backs up even more. Um, We know that God does hate divorce, but I want us to also remember that God hates lying, that God hates stealing, that God hates gossip that God hates all sin, but this is why Jesus came. He came to, um, to redeem us and to save us. Um, it's interesting here too, like I said, so, um, he is actually speaking to both cultures here when he says, um, eh, that if, in verse 12, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Mark, um, the IVP again, like I said, trusted commentaries, y'all, around God. Mark, who writes for readers living where wives could divorce their husbands. Remember, he's writing to a largely Gentile audience. He may be bringing out the implications of Jesus's teaching for them as well. And so he's speaking to both audiences here. Um... And I think verses like this really are a space where we kind of shift into what does this say about me? What does this say I should do? Um, Or far worse, what does this say about that other person we know? Um, And so I want us to kind of shift and see why is it that God, um, what God joins together, let no man separate? Why is that? What is the picture of that? Um, and I think there's a couple here. Um, one of your cross references this week took you to Romans chapter seven, and this is another space where if you zoom in and you go straight to those few verses, verses one and three talking about divorce, then you actually miss the meaning of what Paul is writing about. Paul is simply stating the law and, and, and quoting, um, very similarly what Jesus is saying here, but he does it to give a human, um, example to explain a spiritual concept. And we have seen Mark do that time and time again, where he uses a human experience, like a healing to um, illustrate a spiritual concept Um, Verses Romans seven, four through six gives this explanation. Likewise, brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to one another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law. There's that picture of releasing, that divorcing. We are released from the law. And having died to that, which has held us captive so that we may serve in a new way of the spirit, not in the old way of the written code. Um, He is pointing to the fact that we belong to Christ and what we he has joined to him. We should not try to separate. We should not try to pull ourselves away. Furthermore, I feel like if we were to press in and really ask one of my favorite questions that we talk about every week, what does this say about God? I think that there's a picture in this that God holds fast to us. And I think he um brings us together. He does not let us go and he does not keep us. Um, In their culture, a man could divorce his wife for whatever reason he wanted to. Like, I don't like the way you chew. So we're going to get divorced. And a woman was powerless And um, I think what is such in contrast to that is the God who steadfastly loves us. Um, He is forgiving and long suffering and patient, and he never will flippantly walk out on you. Um, He is a keeper and he holds you fast when we surrender, when we hear And we, when we believe, and when we do, he holds fast to us. We hold fast to him and he helps us bear fruit. We have a God who is different, which means we are part of a kingdom that was different. Um, Verse 13, and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them for such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them laying hands on them. So remember from last week, we talked about children were powerless and utterly dependent um, there were warnings about placing obstacles in their way. And then literally just a few time, a few sentences later, they are literally trying to become literal obstacles to these children getting to Jesus. And he says, no, this is what the kingdom of Christ is like. Um, we are powerless, and we cannot enter into relationship with Jesus unless we recognize that we cannot save ourselves, that we are utterly dependent on God for everything. I talk a lot about maturity in our faith. It is opposite of the maturity of the world. In the world, maturity looks like more and more independence. As I try to teach my children simple things, feeding themselves, Tying shoes, learning how to get dressed, brush their teeth, ultimately one day driving, making important decisions about life. um, Helping train them toward independence is what defines their maturity in the world. But the opposite is true within our spiritual walk, in our faith. The more mature I grow in my relationship with Christ, the more I recognize My dependence. It is a growing dependence on God. And I think a lot of times we tend to struggle with our faith because we keep getting to these places where we go, I should be able to do this by now. (laughs) And instead, we need to remember that we cannot do anything without him. And I grow more and more dependent on him each and every day, recognizing that I am powerless to do any of it on my own, but it is only his power in me that allows me to continue to hear and believe and bear fruit. I love this quote from the NIV application commentary on Mark by David Garland. He says, in the ancient world, children had no status. They were easily ignored and barred access because no one would take the trouble to complain and fight for them. These children who must have been brought to Jesus by others have nothing to commend an audience with him and cannot defend themselves against the bullies. Jesus holds them uh, up again as an example. Their littleness contrasts sharply with the overbearing disciples who want to assert their power and influence. We have continued over the last couple chapters to see them wanting to assert their power and influence, wanting to show their bigness, wanting to be the one who casts out the demon, wanting to be first, wanting to sit at Jesus's right hand. And here they are exerting that force and trying to keep an influence, trying to keep these little children away. The disciples need to learn not only to minister to the little ones, but also to adopt the attitude of littleness. I love that. Adopt the attitude of littleness. The little ones are easily pushed aside because they are weak, but God works most powerfully in weakness. When I am weak, therefore I am strong. When one is appropriately little, like a child, and poor in spirit, one is more open to receiving the reign of God. Children are also more open to receiving gifts than adults, and adults want to earn what they can get, as the next scene with the rich man reveals. We need to remember our littleness. And I think that's part of the the beauty of God-centered Bible study is the more I behold who he is, the more little I realize I am. And not in a self-degrading, oh, I'm so little and powerless and weak, but in a, God, I'm so little and powerless and weak. And yet you impart strength. You came to save. You came to walk alongside of me, that you call me your own and that you hold fast to me. In a humility way, he gives us this beautiful gift and allows us access to who he is. And I love that Mark juxtaposes this this story with the next one, this rich young ruler, verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, so we see him continuing his journey toward Jerusalem But not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly, I will say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life, but many who are first will be last, and last will be first. All right, so y'all, I might soapbox here a little bit, (laughs) but when I study this in context, and when I see this, um, I think so often we come to this passage as a passage about generosity and tithing, and about um, giving everything for God and, and laying everything down and surrendering everything. And that this man just wasn't willing to lay aside what he had for God. He was greedy and he walked away. Y'all, I don't believe that's what this passage is about. This is a passage about our ability to save ourselves. Here is a man who wants to earn his way into heaven. He wants to do everything. But surrender his life to Jesus, and so he. We see this insider-outsider picture here. Remember, this is one of those kind of um, structures that we see within Mark, where he we see this person who we would think is on the inside, who's actually on the outside. Um, this is who you would expect to be in, but he's he's not um, willing to sacrifice, um, his heart was not surrendered. And I love these little words that Jesus looked at him. That implies that he had concern for him. And he loved him. But this man had no, I believe, help my unbelief. He didn't say, I have faith, help me trust you more. Instead, he said, I don't want your way. And he walked away sad. Because what he really wanted was to do all the right things. William Barclay in the Daily Steady Bible series on the Gospel of Marks says, There was an appeal of love. Jesus was not angry with him. He loved him too much for that. It was not a look of anger, but an appeal of love it was the look of grief. And that grief was the sorest grief of all the grief of seeing a man deliberately choose not to be what he might have been and had it in him to be y'all. He didn't have faith. Remember faith, um, the helps word study, I keep coming back to this sentence, this phrase that the Lord continually births faith in the yielded believer so they can know what he prefers. If we want to know his way, we have to be a yielded believer. We have to hear and believe, and we have to submit to him. And when Jesus says how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God, the disciples then go, well, then who gets to go to heaven? Like, who gets to be in the kingdom of God if this man who is obeying all these laws? And Jesus says, and y'all, this is important because I think we take this verse out of context so often. We want to use this as a means to our own end. Oh, what's impossible for man is possible with God. All things are possible for God. And we talk about that in the context of earthly outcomes. But y'all, Jesus speaks these words in the context of our salvation. It is impossible for us to save ourselves. And that is why he came. Y'all, because there is nothing I can do. And there is nothing that you can do to save yourself, but yield and believe. And in that position of humility and submission, we find the way. What was impossible for us to achieve, he achieved on our behalf. That is why he came. Jesus came. And we see him building here on the same illustration from Mark 9 with the healing of the boy with the unclean spirit. The disciples couldn't do it no man could do it we've seen that theme throughout all of um throughout so much of this the no man could bind the the man with the unclean spirit who lived among the tombs no human could cure the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years no man, the disciples and no one could bind and and heal this young boy who had the unclean spirit but all three have one thing in common only jesus could make them him clean. Only Jesus could heal. And the same for us. Only Jesus is able to hear, heal the uncleanness of our heart. We just have to be willing to submit. And y'all, I just, I love Peter so much. I love him so much. Can y'all just hear the pride in his voice? Like, oh, we did that. We did that. I did that. With you. Like us, we left like, we're in. He's like, we did it. And um, when we read these verses with these human eyes, with these worldly eyes, we like to zero in on this idea that, oh, we might be last now, but one day we're going to be first. Oh, we may have to set aside now, but one day we're going to get it back a hundredfold. We may have to walk away from um, our family uh, and our inheritance and where we are here but one day we have this bigger family where we will receive a hundredfold the greatness of the of our brothers and sisters in the kingdom of God <laughs> and y'all we have gloss over two very very key words here with persecutions. Miriam Webster defines persecutions as to harass or punish in a manner designed to injure, injure grieve, or afflict the Greek word uh, means chase or pursuit. Um, It is, um, according to the HELPS word study, properly, um, it comes from the root word dioko, which means to to hunt. Um, Properly, it's chasing, it's persecution, it's the hunt to bring someone down like an animal. This is what awaits in following Jesus. But we've talked time and time again that though there is hardship and though there is persecution it is still the place where we could go where else can you go to find the hope and to find the love and to to find the 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 faith that that we need to make it through life there is nowhere else you can go that being in his kingdom even with persecutions is better than being outside of it his kingdom is not about greatness, but it's about surrender. And remember the context of the gospel of Mark, writing to those who were suffering. Um, Jim Elliott in um, one of his sermons wrote, said this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. That is our call. Verse 32, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Here we go, y'all. We're getting there. And Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed were afraid and taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was about to happen to him saying, see, we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. So we see Jesus once again, the time is coming. He's like, we're going to Jerusalem and it's going to happen. He speaks plainly. And this is the third or fourth time. And I think um, you see here, those who are following Jesus were afraid. I think they could sense it. They know there's fear because they're starting to see that this was not what they expected. Remember, their minds are are beginning to perceive. They're not quite there yet. They won't get there until after his resurrection. And it will all make sense to them. But they are continuing um, to, uh, they are starting to get it and they're not quite there. Um, Remember, he just talked about how the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Okay, so thinking, um, okay, I'm last now, but I might be first later. James and John come up with a special request, James and John, the sons of Zebedee came up to him and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us, whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, well, what do you want me to do for you? The well was my addition. What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right and one at your left in glory. So they're thinking, okay, well, eventually. All right. So we want to be first in glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, for it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the 10 heard it, they became indignant toward James and John. Oh, I love the disciples. And Jesus called to him, called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the son of man came not to serve, but not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So James and John come and they ask to sit in a place of honor. Um, They're like, okay, well, we gave up everything, right? And so if we're last here, we're going to be first there. So can we just sit here? And I love the omniscience of God, the son here. (laughs) He knows, he knows the life that James and John are going to live. In fact, in 44 AD, James becomes one of the first, um, I believe it's the first disciple to be recorded, um, of these 11, I'm not going to count Judas, um, who dies for his faith. Um, in Acts 1 and two, it was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them. And he had James, the brother of John put to death with the sword. He's the first recorded death of a disciple, not counting Judas, like I said, um, They do drink from the cup that Jesus drank. Um, They do face persecutions. And these original readers of of this account would know that. Like they are watching their brothers and sisters get hunted down, get persecuted and pursued. And Jesus reminds them of the difference, though, between his kingdom and that of the world. He says, worldly authority lords it over people. Um, but he continues to call them to humility and verses 43 through 45 are some of the key most quoted kind of core verses in the gospel of Mark that Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. The Greek word for serve means to serve at table act. It's an active, um, Act. It's literally kicking up dust because you're on the move. He's saying, I came to serve, to be active. Um, it's the Greek word that we get the word deacon from. Um it and there's a very close connection, y'all, to that definition of faith and the definition of serving. And so I think it points us again to that here, believe, bear fruit that when we have faith, we are bearing fruit. And part of bearing fruit is found in serving. Hebrews 6, 9 through 12, though we speak to you in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown in his name in serving the saints, as you may still do. And we desire each of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope till the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Y'all, there is something about serving that helps us hold fast to faith with full assurance. It helps us be Um, from uh, becoming ineffective and unfruitful so that we may continue to see God fulfilling his promises to us in the active working out of our faith through service to one another, literally kicking up dust on the move as we move toward him. Um, He served more than any of us ever will. Um, And because Christ was a servant and served faithfully, I can humbly serve as well. And I want us to, um, I think oftentimes we feel like there's a scarcity mindset um, or there's a fear of being forgotten, or we're afraid that if we put ourselves in places where we want to serve, that we're going to be trampled on. And there certainly are um, boundaries that we must put around ourselves. I do believe that, but follow me here. Um, And I don't think this necessarily, I get in trouble for this. I don't know that this is necessarily a, you need to serve at your church on a Sunday morning and that's what service is. I think service is more than that. I think that's part of it, but I think living this life of active service, kicking up dust is constantly being in a space where we are willing to serve whether that's taking a meal to somebody who's um you know just had surgery or is sick or you just know (laughs) you made some extra food and this mom over here is very busy and she needs some food for the week it would just help her not to have to do that um it could be you know i i I like to think of this as living with margin in your life it could be willing to stop to have that conversation with the person that you cross paths with who just needs a listening ear Um, I think living a life of service is one that is in tune to where God is moving and and opening doors and deliberately crossing paths so that we are always in a state of looking for how we can bring him glory and lead others to him. Y'all, because he came, his greatest service is the fact that he came. We just saw this beautiful picture of how amazing he is. And then he comes back down in veiled glory to give his life as a ransom. Y'all, the definition of ransom literally is redemption price. It's the ransom money to free a slave. Um, we were the ones who were enslaved, just like we talked about earlier about that picture of being enslaved to the law enslaved to the, the works mentality and how he came to give us freedom. Um, I, um, my grandmother just passed away. And as one of the sweetest gifts, um, she had a couple copies of a couple of my Bible studies that she had done. And so I want to read this excerpt that I actually read at her funeral that she wrote, um, in, um, it was in relation to Romans nine, I mean, sorry, Hebrews nine, but I think it just fits so well here. She said, I have complete trust that the lord jesus has completed everything that i that could ever be needed to be done to make me right with god he has made my reconciliation to god possible and complete and now in spo- instead of focusing on my sins i fo- i focus on who i am in christ i have his righteousness i focus on and claim his promises how rich we are who do Let us live a life of complete trust in him. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Help me in those areas. Let me be reminded daily that you have done everything I need to have reconciliation with God and through that have access to his promises so that we can live a life bearing fruit for him. Verse 46, and they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving, Jericho with his disciples were very, very close to Jerusalem, y'all. And and a great crowd. Bartimaeus, the blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was uh, Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, "Um, call him. And they called the blind man saying, take heart, get up. He is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Y'all, Jesus is only about 15 to 17 miles from Jerusalem at this point. Um, and we have, I think um, it is not one of the official James R. Edward, Mark and Sandwiches, but we see um, kind of how Mark sandwiches or bookends this middle section with two stories, the healing of a blind man. Mark 8, 22, which kind of kicks off this section um, and then was the healing of a blind man. And again, here, um, the healing of blind Bartimaeus. Y'all, the disciples are still spiritually blind. They don't see it completely, but blind Bartimaeus is spiritually seeing. They say when Jesus of Nazareth, they use his early um, earthly distinction, but Bartimaeus calls him the son of David. This is the only place in Mark that this title of Jesus is used. Um, It is a recognition that Jesus is Messiah. He is physically blind, but yet spiritually sees. Some commentaries point that this is not maybe still a full recognition of Jesus as the suffering servant Messiah, but son of David points more to the conquering king. And I want us to keep that image in our mind, because as we are continuing to pull the thread through into next week in chapter 11, we are going to see that picture play out fully. The NIV application study Bible says this, this present episode reveals that as the son of David, Jesus expresses his royal authority in works of healing and mercy for the despised outcast, not in rounding up recruits for a revolution. The son of David hears the cries of the oppressed, gives sight to the blind and brings blessing and peace. And I think this is one of um, such a beautiful juxtaposition here. Because we have the rich young ruler who wanted to do it his way, and when he couldn't, walked away. But here, the one who is inside is the oppressed outcast, the blind man who sits beside the road, um, whose sight was restored. And y'all, did you catch those last few words? Jesus sent him on his way, and instead he followed Jesus. There were some scholars, um, some commentaries I read that even pointed to wondering if John Mark knew who Bartimaeus was. There's this, um, how really it captured me that that named who his father was. And while his name literally means son of Timaeus, I think that it shows potentially a personal connection, which would be so fantastic. But we see that he followed Jesus. Matthew Henry says, it is a not enough to come to Christ for spiritual healing, but when we are healed, we must continue to follow him that we may honor him and receive instruction from him. We don't just come to him for our salvation. We continue to follow him, recognizing that we are still in process of sanctification, that he is still teaching us, that we will never reach an end to the to gaining knowledge about what it means to follow him and to live that out. Um, Henry continues, those who have spiritual eyesight see that beauty in Christ, which will draw them to run after him. When we behold the beauty of who he is, we will want to pursue and chase and follow and yield as we believe. One of your cross references this week was um, out of Psalm 52. And so I want to close kind of reading that short Psalm. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man, the steadfast love of the Lord endures all day? Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, your worker, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right, Selah. You love all words that devour, O oh, deceitful tongue, but God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living, Selah. The righteous shall see and fear. And shall laugh at him saying, see this man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly let us not trust in our own way but instead submit and live in the house of god in the kingdom and the in the faith to trust in his steadfast love and to wait patiently for him y'all what hope we have jesus son of david god the son came to serve and pay the price to cover the cost of our sin Hebrews 9.22 says, Indeed, under law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. He heals our spiritual blindness by the spilling of his blood. And as we enter into the final section of Mark, we are going to see the plan unfold. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for doing for us what we could not. What is impossible for us is possible because of you. Lord, let us put complete trust in you that we would continue to follow you, not leaning on our own way, but submitting and yielding to yours so that we may know what you prefer. May we hear and see and believe and bear fruit for you. May we be like blind Bartimaeus, whose sight beheld you. And he continued to follow you. May we grow in more and more in the likeness and trust you. And as we grow more dependent on you, it's in your name I pray. Amen. Over the last few weeks, as I have said goodbye to my mama, the reality of eternity and the hope of heaven has come close. Y'all, my grandmother loved Jesus and she told everyone, listen about the hope she had. She didn't earn it with her good works, though they were many. She knew she had been reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus. She lived daily with dependence on God, and her obedience to Him was out of an overflow of gratitude for what He had done. Y'all, I'm so thankful for our humble Savior who came to do what was impossible for us to achieve, so that we might have sure and steadfast hope. Like my mama, let's let the overflow of our gratitude be a life of service. Next week, we enter into Jerusalem and the final week of Jesus' life. At the time of recording, we are also entering into the season of Lent leading up to Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday. Y'all, I love it when God orchestrates this. Um, He's done this before in Feasting on Truth, as we have studied, where we get to study in real time what, um, in that season, what he walked. And y'all, this is where we're going to see the culmination of who Jesus is and watch um, what he came to do play out. He's told them plainly what would happen. So here we go. I'll see you then.